keep your Bibles open to Acts chapter 20. We're going to begin our study in verse 6, and we'll go through verse 12. And I will tell you, as you start thinking about the book of Acts and Luke's record, Luke records the number of conversions, what people did to become a child of God, what kind of things were taught in their sermons, and the question that was answered, what must I do to be saved, was answered with a very clear affirmation. However, Luke also records a pattern of worship, how that early New Testament church gathered together, how they sang songs, they prayed prayers, they gave of their means, they partook of the Lord's Supper. When you start thinking about all the wonderful things that were a part of that great early church, There's a great pattern revealed in the book of Acts. And I want to begin by noticing Acts 20 verse 7 and ask the question, is there anything special about the first day of the week? You see, if you think about the Jewish people from the Old Testament, they had a day that God had reserved for them to rest, but it was also a day of reflection, it was a day of of giving honor to God and for His creation and for His choosing them to be His people. Well, we want to take Acts chapter 20, verses 6 through 12, and see if we can learn three things from it this morning. We want to talk about the Lord's Day. We want to talk about the Lord's Supper. And then finally, the Lord's Word. And all these three come from this passage. Let's talk about the Lord's Day to begin with. What day is it that God intended for those of us who are Christians to worship upon? Is there a day that is designated or is a day set aside? We do know that God expected the church to assemble together as a body, as a group. You know, this morning we all came together about 9 o'clock. We came here to participate in these items of worship. That's something God intended from the very beginning with His church. For instance, in Acts 11 and verse 26, we learn about Barnabas going to get Paul, and it says, And when he had found him, we brought him to Antioch, so that for a whole year they assembled with the church. Notice, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were called Christians first called Christians in Antioch. But if you go to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, we learn that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. God expects the Lord's church to come together on a regular appointed day of worship. He does not want us to choose to do something else. He wants us to be here to be assembled with the other saints. Paul uses the phrase when he writes the Corinthians as coming together. For just a minute, I'd like for you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll look at verses 17 through 20 and then verses 33 and 34. Now in the giving of these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together... As a church. 
Look at that phrase. You come together as a church, as a, as a group of believers, as a group of those who are called out of the world. And he says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now listen again. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. The church was coming together, and they were coming together in one place. I know there's a real popular thing that some churches are wanting to uh, embrace now, this idea of small groups, maybe having a little group meet in this home, another group. That's not what God was looking for. What God was looking for was the church to come together in one place. And then you drop down to verses 33 and 34. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. God intended us to gather together as a people but it appears that the first day of the week is that day that they gathered together. I want you to notice with me verse 6 of this context. He says, but when we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Joined them at Troas. Now, I will tell you that uh, it was just about six years ago this week that I got to go to Troas for the first time. One of the things that you will notice as Luke records this, they'll, they'll come to a port, they'll stay there for a few days, and then they'll sail about 30 miles for, further on the shore. They'll get out and stay about a few days, and they'll sail a little bit more. Well, he gets out here at uh, Troas, and uh, they're going to stay for seven days. Why seven days? Paul wants to assemble with the saints. He wants to spend some time preaching and teaching to them. Now, there's a good reason why that the first day of the week became special. It was the day that the Lord rose from the dead. It was the day that the Lord met with his apostles that first day of the week. The second time he met with them was one week later. It was also the first day of the week. It was also the day on which the church started. You know, if you go to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him very early in the morning on the first day of the week. You see, very early in the morning is when they came and they found the tomb was empty because Jesus had risen that day. But you think back when we studied Acts chapter 2. What a pivotal passage that was. Here's a place where we now learn that everything that they have been looking forward to is coming to pass. They have been looking for the coming of the kingdom, the beginning of the church, and it started that day. We know that it occurred on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2 verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Well, you say, well, how do you know that's the first day of the week? 
Because if you go back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day you were brought the sheaf and the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. If the Sabbath is always on Saturday, that means Pentecost is always going to be the first day of the week. And thus John would say in writing the book of Revelation, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day. So if you and I are looking through Acts chapter 20 and we see on the first day of the week, we understand this is the Lord's day. Now when we think further about that, that brings us to the second idea And that is the Lord's Supper. Because if you're studying this passage, you will notice some some emphasis on this taking place the first day of the week. We do know that when they assembled together on the first day of the week, they gave their contribution. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So the Lord's church met together the first day of the week. What did they do when they met together? We know that they had contributions, but we also know that that day was the day they took the Lord's Supper. Earlier when I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you'll notice very carefully, Paul is saying, I'm concerned when you come together, it's not for the better but for the worse. And here's the problem why it's worse. He said, because there's divisions among you. And when you get to verse 20, therefore when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. What they were doing was abusing it. They were making it into a common meal. They were allowing some to have where others had not. And in doing all of this, these people were not respecting the intent and the purpose of that day. He used the phrase, the breaking of the bread. Now I know that when some people say, well it says they broke the bread, maybe that's just a common meal. Why didn't he say, take of the bread and the fruit of the vine? You know, just a few moments ago, the bread was passed and then the fruit of the vine was passed. And someone would say, well, why why just use the breaking of the bread? Well, it's called a synecdoche. That's a big, long word, which simply means you let one part stand for the whole. And someone says, well, I don't know about that. Well, think about yourselves. And about uh, probably an hour, some of you are going to say, let's go eat. Are you going to drink as well? Are you going to have something to go with it? The phrase, the breaking of the bread was uh, a way, a means, a figure of communicating for taking the Lord's Supper. And if you have any doubt about that, in the original language, the word the is putting the breaking of the bread, not just any time you have a meal, but the breaking of the bread as is found in verse 11. When you go to Acts 2, verse 42, 
a very simple statement that was given by Luke in that beginning of the early New Testament church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayers. There you have the worship of that early New Testament church. But you see, the assembly and the Lord's Supper is for communion. Sometimes we call this the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we call it communion. That word communion has a a unique focus to it. It has an idea that's important in it, in the sense that there is something that is being shared. There's a sense in which there's a sharing between God and us, and there's an also a sense in which there's a sharing between us together. And let me take a few minutes to talk about that. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul would say the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion? Of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Notice how he uses the idea of communing. When I take of that bread, I am remembering the Lord's body. When I take of that fruit of the vine, I am remembering his blood. And you and I together are one body. And we commune with one another as we partake of it. There's a a feature, a sense, if you will, in which as you and I eat together, we show our fellowship with one another. We show our friendship with one another. Look at chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Notice this idea of fellowship. He said, if I go and I sit at a demon's table... And I partake of the food. He says, I am having fellowship with a demon. He said, we as Christians cannot have fellowship and communion with God on his table and then turn and do the same with demons. See, the worship that we participate in on the Lord's Day by taking the Lord's Supper is extremely important. For just a moment, I'd like to focus on what Paul said he had taught the Corinthians, what he himself had been given. Notice how he puts it in verse 23 of chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. In other words, God had given Paul these instructions so that Paul could instruct others. And he says, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let each man or let a man examine himself and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So that means that when you and I partake, our minds are to be focused on the Lord and to be focused on what he has given us. But the day set aside to do that is the Lord's day. That's the day the Lord wants us to partake in this celebratory meal. But the third thing that you observe here is the Lord's Word. It's very easy as studying this passage to say, oh, there, you look in verse 7, on the first day of the week, and you say, that's the Lord's Day. And you say, they broke bread. That's the Lord's Supper. But there's an emphasis here on the Lord's Word. You can't forget the sermon of Paul, and how could you forget it? It was a long sermon. It continued past midnight. I can tell you from where I stand, 30 minutes and people start squirming. I'm serious. You reach a certain point in which you know that The audience is leaving you one by one. They may not be getting up and walking out, but you're losing the audience. I think our attention span has gotten much shorter. I remember as a little boy growing up in Lamar County, Alabama, that Brother Gus Nichols would come and hold a gospel meeting. We'd have morning services and evening services. Brother Nichols would come and start about 9 o'clock and finish about 11 o'clock. It was time to go to lunch. He'd start about 7 o'clock at night and about 8.30 he was getting going really good. Most of the lessons were an hour and a half, two hours long. And there was a lot of attention to those lessons because people were learning something that would make them stronger, make them better, do more to please God. Paul's lesson here was long, but not to be tedious. It was long, not because he just said, okay, I want to see how long I can make a mistake. It was an important message that needed to be delivered. But it was interrupted by a young man falling from a window to his death. Now, I've had a lot of people say, reckon why that young man fell out. Reckon what was going on. Well, I've got some opinions. I've got some some guesses. The Bible tells us it was at night. We know it went to after midnight. We're told it was in an upper room, and we were told that there were many lights. You know, there's many lights in this building here today. But, you know, that's not really a problem because this is electric lights. But if you would have been there in that day, you would have been in a small room and all the lights would have been probably from oil lamps, perhaps candles, but most likely oil lamps. 
And I've been in several of those buildings where oil lamps were once burned and you can smell the oil when you walk in the door. And you can imagine burning and I can imagine that the, the smell of the oil burning was probably pretty strong. So the young man goes to the window. Fresh air. Falls asleep. Falls out of the window. Paul raises him up. You see, the length of the sermon was probably challenging to him, but it could have been the the conditions of the room as well. But the truth is, there's a strong emphasis here. There's a reason why this was a long sermon. It was Paul's last sermon to these brethren. Notice with me what you find in Acts 20, verse 38. Sorrowing most of all for these words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. These people are not going to see Paul anymore. What if I knew that today was the last sermon that I would get to preach to this group of people? And what if the the last words that you're going to leave, you want to say something that's going to communicate to everybody's need and it will be the last words. I imagine that this will be a little longer lesson as well. But you see, preaching was God's plan to educate and motivate the congregation. God is the one who knew the way to do it. When you go to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God in His wisdom knew that there had to be a means of communicating and educating people. And God said, what we're going to do, we're going to have men who will get up and they'll preach and teach His will. In writing to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 13, he said, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Think about that for just a minute. What we are attempting to accomplish this morning is not telling you some good ideas. We're telling you what God says on the subject. So that means if I'm talking about the first day of the week being the Lord's Day, if I'm talking about the Lord's Supper and how it's to be partaken of and what it means, and then we're talking about the Lord's Word, we're drawing attention to what He said in all of this. And He said that effectively works in you who believe. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. He said, let all things be done for edification. Everything that we ought to do ought to be trying to build people up, make us stronger, make us more what God wants us to be. But there's some restrictions, if you will, some guidelines on what must be preached. Someone says, hey, I'd like a real good lesson on maybe this topic or that topic. Well, does God's Word address it? 
You see, when Paul wrote Timothy, the young preacher, he told him, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead and his appearing in kingdom. Preach the word. Whose word? God's word. He said, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Yes. You preach the Lord's word. We're here on the first day of the week because it's the Lord's day. It belongs to Him. It's His day. And you and I ought to dedicate ourselves to say, today's the Lord's day, so I'm going to do something that praises, honors, and worships God. And so you sing the songs. You pray the prayers. You give. You remember the Lord in the Lord's Supper. And you study His Word. You see, because today's the Lord's day. And you worship Him on that day. I'm so thankful that in the last few days we've seen four young people dedicate their lives to becoming children of God. They made a commitment. They said, I want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to make it known that he is the Lord in my life. And they have gone to the ultimate act of obedience by being baptized for the remission of their sins. This morning, I'd like to ask you, are you a Christian? If you're not a Christian, why not, because of your faith in Christ, repent of those sins, confess your faith in Him, and be baptized. I can assure you everything's ready for you this morning. The question is, are you ready? And if you're a child of God and you realize, you know what, I've not been doing what God wants me to do. I'm ready now to serve the Lord. What a great passage. Acts chapter 20, verses 6 through 12, and the lessons found in it. If you need to obey the gospel or to be restored, if you'll come as we now sing number 382, Kneel at the Cross. <laughs>